This is episode number 16, Were You Adopted? with Leslie Johnson. Welcome. My name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of adoptees and foster care youth who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. Today's guest is a good friend of mine. She's a therapist who works in multiple fields, including foster care and adoption. She's someone who chose to work in this field primarily due to her curiosity and love for people. Tune in as we talk about healing, the number one question that we should be asked on all medical forms, importance of finding your tribe, and why you should strive to be the best version of yourself at all times. Without further ado, please welcome Leslie Johnson. Leslie, thank you so much for joining us today. If you don't mind, I would like to start off by having you briefly share a little bit of your story and the type of work you do within foster care and adoption, and then we can move into some of the other questions from there. I am a marriage and family therapist, and one of my uh, areas that I chose to kind of specialize in is working with uh, the adoption and foster care community. So clients that I see in my practice uh, are, I see a lot of uh, adoptees of all ages, kids, teenagers, adult adoptees. I also work um, with uh, foster foster youth and former foster youth. Um, I also do work with uh, first parents and adoptive parents and prospective adoptive parents. And one of the one of the reasons that I chose to work um, with this community, I think had a lot to do with my own experience growing up. I was adopted when I was three and a half months old, and um, it was it, I was it was a domestic adoption, and it was uh, you know it was fifty years ago. So, that was still at the time when parents were kind of advised to, to bring children, you know, bring their children home and tell as few people as possible. So my parents did tell, I have a brother who's not genetically related to me, but he was also adopted. Uh, my parents told both of us that we were adopted, but they never, um, I didn't, I remember not knowing really what adoption was. To me, it was just kind of a word and they didn't do a very good job of, explaining along the way so Mm -hmm. uh, what you know kind of different and and also they didn't really I don't think look at our development or things that are happening were happening in our lives uh, as anything related to having been adopted and you know what we know now in terms of the brain and the nervous system is something really significant happens when a when a child a baby an infant or a child um, is separated from their biology so Again, I was I was adopted, uh, raised in the Midwest. Um, loved my adoptive parents, and uh, chose to you know chose the field that I did. I think again in part due to my own experience because I was I was in therapy in college, um, working with a lot of anxiety and relationship issues, and nobody was talking with me or having helping me even conceptualize that some of this stuff might have had to do with 
early separation trauma, adoption, et cetera. And um, I went to many therapists, well, many, I went to three, but none of them ever even brought up um, adoption. So, and I had kind of been um, conditioned probably isn't the right word, but you know, nobody was talking about adoption in my family. So I didn't, I came to believe that it wasn't significant. So I wasn't sharing that information, but it also wasn't being asked as anything, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, I, I try now when I, I speak a lot at counseling centers and treatment centers um, and and work a lot with other therapists uh, talking about how to work with the adoption and foster care community. And, you know, this information, you know, were you adopted should be, you know, on a medical forum, on an intake forum, on a school record. Yeah, because yeah. it does have meaning and it does it does matter. Um, so yeah. I had a, you know, oh, go ahead. I was going to say ahead. you bring up a good point with uh, regard to separation. Do you have any, yeah. ad- because that's that's something that I've um, come across quite a bit and actually, you know, I'm sure I've experienced some of it on my own terms. Do you have any advice for people who are currently dealing with it as far as what what steps can they take to begin that healing process? Yeah, so I think it's it's kind of a general question, but it's a really good one in terms of, you know, every, I think I would say almost every person who, that I know personally and professionally that, um, was adopted and had that early separation. Um, and you know, sometimes for people it's multiple separations. So they're separated from maybe their, their, their first parent at birth placed in foster care or an orphanage separated, then maybe placed somewhere else. Maybe, you know, so, so sometimes people have had multiple separations Mm -hmm. and there's, certainly not not any adopted person that I know that I've worked with who doesn't have issues around transitions and separations, um, a lot of anxiety. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the first things to do is to recognize that it that it's related, that it's very likely related to the early trauma. And trauma that happens before we have words to explain it is just stored in our nervous system. So that's another thing to really acknowledge. Wow, I don't remember this but my body still remembers this. And then you seek, you know, if, if possible, you know, you seek help, you know, and whether that's with, a, you know, ther- therapeutic help, whether that's reading, uh, educating yourself about the brain and the nervous system and what happens, whether that's uh, joining a community, um, you know, an online community, whether it's sharing your story with someone else, whether it's listening to a podcast, um, there's so many ways I think to to heal, and a lot of times people ask, you know, is it possible to heal from adoption trauma? And I absolutely wouldn't be doing the work that I do if I didn't think there that that of course there is. Um, it's just finding the right modality and finding the right uh, I think ways to to work with that trauma. Tap into it, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, because that's that's something that um. You know, one of the things that I'm actually doing right now is I'm putting together a book of my own that uh, discusses a lot of the experiences that I went through. And when you had said the fact that, you know, it's not there's so many different ways that you have to process it in order for some of the things to heal. And I'm noticing this more and more as I write, because it's one thing to write a memory down, but then it's a complete other thing to read it over and actually emotionally process the whole thing. Like put, right. put yourself in that place and 
you know essentially relive that moment and that's that's what i'm noticing is for me that's been, that's been the most helpful because i'm able to use all of my senses to process yeah. all these different moments and that's i right. think how i'm able to heal the most right and so and it's it's even acknowledge you think you bring up a really good point because it's acknowledging too how how or figuring out how uh, you process information and how so for some people it's through writing for some people it's through the spoken word um meaning you know like sharing their story verbally with someone or or sitting with another person and talking about it for other people um you know one of the therapies that i use in my practice is is emdr which stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing it's a mouthful but essentially it's a way to work with with memories that there might not be, it could be pre-verbal, again, pre-verbal trauma memories that don't have words associated, but it also is a, is a therapy where the person doesn't actually have to, to talk too much if they don't want to. They can, but it's another way, you know, it's another way of, of healing that might work for one person. Well, I think it would work, it works for many people, but it might be a way that, that a person who doesn't really want to write their story or, or talk about their story can can heal from from trauma. Hmm. Could you briefly describe how that practice would work? Because I'm trying to understand it from my end. Is it would you be the one leading the questions? For example, like if I yeah. didn't if I didn't feel comfortable, you know, sharing my story, would you be the one asking me questions, and then I would be given the time to process the answers? Is that I'm assuming that's how. Well, so I've done. I've I've. I've written a couple things about EMDR and, and as it relates to adoption, and I've and I've presented on it. But in a nutshell, the 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 idea is that when when something um, when something traumatic happens, it's stored in the brain in a way that's not adaptive. So a lot of times, the memory feels like it 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 feels like it's. It's a, it, the event happened, but it sometimes feels like it's happening now. And so uh, EMDR, so meaning um, if you've ever had an experience, maybe I'll give it a, a kind of a generic. So if, if someone was in a car accident mm -hmm. and um, they're unable to to now drive, get on the freeway because that's where the accident happened. So each time they, they get in their car, their their nervous system revs up and their beliefs, the beliefs about oh, I'm going to be in another accident, I'm not going to, you know, it could even be I'm going to die, I'm going to I'm going to hurt someone, I'm going to hurt myself. So that accident isn't happening um, in the present, but but their nervous system is responding or, as if it is. And what what EMDR does is it, it, it allows, it's an integrative therapy that helps people get unstuck from from kind of that, that loop of, of thinking that something's going to happen or even just reliving the trauma over and over in their head. Um, it, I don't know if that if that makes sense, but the way that it then it works is so it's helping the left hemisphere of the the brain and the right hemisphere of the brain, also the cortical region and the limbic system, which is your fight, flight, or freeze. Hmm. It's kind of helping all parts of the brain communicate. So it targets these these memories and the beliefs and the sense the body sensations associated with the beliefs and the memory. And we use tap, like bilateral stimulation, which is, again, stimulating the left and the right hemisphere of the brain. Mm -hmm. And we do that either through eye movements, alternate eye movements, 
Um, my clients seem to prefer their, these little tappers that they hold and they just kind of buzz in their hand alternately, left, right, left, right. And we, we, it's a four, four pronged approach, meaning there's a memory. So we, so I would say, you know, when you think of that memory, bring to mind a snapshot of the, 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 the most vivid or worst part of it. So then you have a visual, um, and when you're looking at that picture, what do you notice in your body? So we bring the body, the somatic, excuse me, the somatic experience into it. Um, oh, I feel a tightness in my chest. Okay, are there any emotions that go along with that memory? Sadness, grief, um, and, and anxiety. And then as you're holding that image, noticing the feelings in your body and feeling that sadness and grief, what do you believe to be true? Oh, um, I'm not safe. And we... We, so we, we set that up with those four pieces. It also works if there's not all four, because like I said, it work, the EMDR is very effective in working when there's maybe not a visual. So then we just work with the body and the, the, the beliefs and the emotions around the, 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 the body's memory. Um, and we do sets of the bilateral stimulation and essentially the brain wants to move towards wholeness and healing. Mm -hmm. And what happens is images are generated, People remember, you know, bits and pieces and the, the brain, kind of, it, different people do it different. It, like it's different for some people. They have strong visual images. Some people, um, they, they can smell certain smells that, that were from the memory. And basically the memory gets reconsolidated and reprocessed and then stored after, after a period of time, re, uh, stored back in the brain. It's still there. The memory is still there. It's not, it's not taken away, but the feelings that are associated with it and the the sensations are gone so the memory is actually now just a memory it's not doesn't feel like it's happening in the present that was phenomenal wow <laughs> I, I never thought i always wondered why in some cases at least for me it's a lot easier to recall a moment that um you know like uh for example a negative moment like uh one was that's full of trauma Versus right. recalling something that's happy and, you know, you, you just, I think you just said it uh, word for word. And that's, I guess when you're in trauma, you're processing everything with emotion or more and emotion that, than thought. With that, with that negativity bias too, mm -hmm. you know, that you're kind of seeing the world with, with that, that lens. So that's why sometimes when there's complex trauma, if meaning that it's just not a single incident that happened, so it, it, it can be even uh, more complicated. So let's use adoption as, as, a, as a, an example. A uh, person, you know, baby's born, separated from their biology, placed in an uh, orphanage, um, separated again, placed in, you know, separated from the, the people they know in the orphanage, placed in their adoptive home. So there's three, those are three separate separation traumas, maybe... The first year of school, they're criticized for how they look. A again, so all the these things are happening that 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 the the initial traumas may have the person already believing, I'm not worthy, um, I'm unlovable, people leave me. Mm -hmm. So, what I what I try to when I explained it to clients, I'll say like it's almost like wearing that lens that those glasses. So now you're walking through the world, and and things that happen, that's how you make sense of them. So. I'm being criticized because I'm not lovable. Then you're in, you know, middle school and you, um, 
you know, you have your first relationship and it, and it goes poorly and, and you break up, it's because I'm not lovable. People leave me. Uh, whereas a person, you know, then it's an, you're, you're in college and something happens. And again, that, that, that internal belief system based on those early traumas, it, it's, that's how the person comes to make sense of it rather than a person who may not have had those traumas would say, Oh yeah, this breakup sucks, but I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be okay. Cause they're not wearing those same sort of that, those same lenses. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. And the brain has a ne- you know, the brain has a natural negativity bias anyway. So that's just based on, um, you know, our early, 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 early ancestors had to know which berries to eat and which ones were poisonous. So they had to constantly be vigilant and who was the, who was the predator and, and our, so it's so leading to our brains have this negativity bias. So we have to work even harder to bring in positive and neutral stimuli and events and memories to offset that kind of negativity bias. It doesn't mean people are negative. It just means that's how our brains are wired. Mm-hmm. Are wired. Yeah. Very interesting. How I would like to know more about your uh, personal experience. So the first question is, I have is, can you take us through a moment when you had experienced um, some of the things that you just spoke of, because it's, you know, <laughs> you, you, you spoke about when, when you first, I guess, started to notice these things, you went to therapists and, you know, I actually, I tried the same thing, but the problem there I found is that oftentimes, at least the therapists that I saw, they didn't have the experience or the knowledge right. of, right dealing with those who have been adopted and post-trauma and things like that. So it was almost, I want to say it was almost impossible to explain how I was feeling. Um, So that's one of the reasons why there was a time I stopped, you know, that practice because I felt like I just wasn't being understood. Yeah. And you weren't, that's Mm -hmm. the thing. And and I hear that a lot too with, with um, clients who who find me and, you know, there's, they say like, gosh, I've went to so many therapists and they kept telling me, you know, it wasn't related to adoption or, and, and I'm not saying everything is, but, but it, you can't separate adoption out from the person. It's mm-hmm. impossible. And, um, and sadly, even today, when I go to counseling centers or, you know, uh, different treatment centers and I am talking to a group of therapists and I ask them, you know, how many of you were adopted? Maybe one person raises their hand. How many of you know someone who was adopted? The, you know, then most of their hands are raised. And I'll say, and how many of you, either in your graduate program, your training site, or in in doing continuing education work, have ever done any, um, had any classes or coursework or mention of working with the adoption population, the adoption and foster care population? And maybe one person will wow. raise their hand. Meaning that, you know, and we know, and meaning that, the, the, that there's still not enough happening. And we know um, statistics show that, that people who were adopted are overrepresented in counseling centers, treatment centers, um, various count, and they seek out therapy more than um, those who were not adopted, but they don't always go in saying, hey, I'm here because I was adopted, mm-hmm. you know? So part of, part of, I mean, and I didn't just answer your question, but I will now. <laughs> so, so I grew up with, I mean, m- 
monstrous separation anxiety. And it was things like, it was primarily uh, when I would be separated from my adoptive mom. And I, it, nothing, it really was almost as if nothing she could do would soothe me. Um, so I would think every single day I would ask multiple times if she was going to pick me up from school at three o'clock. And I mean, my mom never, she wasn't late a day in her life. So it was always going to happen. The answer was always yes. But it was, it was that fear that, that maybe she wasn't going to pick, you know, maybe she wasn't going to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was about 12 and my parents, they rarely did things without my brother and I. So we were very, you know, we we're a pretty close family. And, but when I was about 12, they, my mom decided to, to go with my father just for two nights on a business trip. And, um, we stayed with my grandparents and I loved my grandparents. They, I mean, they were just two of the most wonderful people I've ever known in my life. And it was such a, they had such a cozy home and we could do whatever we wanted. And, but the anxiety of being away from my mom, I, I, I was just a wreck and, and I cried and cried and cried. And I mean, I was 12, I wasn't eight. I was 12. I mean, I was 12. And I remember she called to check in on us, and I, I said to her, "Why did you even adopt me if you're just going to leave?" And you know, that, to me, that it's it's I can laugh about it now, but but what a gift it would have been if if my parents said would have got, gone. I mean, this this kind of anxiety had been, you know, going on for years and years and years. But what a gift if they would have been able to say, wow, something's going on here. And I think, I think it's probably related to adoption, you know? So I, so I think that's probably the main, the main impact. I think my having been adopted is just anxiety around separations. And and today I'm able, I'm able to far better manage separations and transitions, um, but that, but I think growing up, that was I really didn't have the tools, and nobody was, you know, they were they, nobody was able to really make connect the dots and or help me connect the dots that it had anything to do with adoption. Mm-hmm. Did you did you have a choice when you got adopted? Because it seems like it's a common topic amongst some of the other adoptees is that when the adoption happened, they weren't given a choice of whether or not they actually wanted to be adopted. Was that something that you were given or? I wasn't because I was adopted when I was a, ba- a baby. So okay. I was just three and a half months old when I was, when I was adopted. Um, so I didn't, I didn't, to my knowledge, I did not have a choice. And do you know why <laughs> the adoption happened in the first place? Yes, I do. Because I have, um, I have, I am in reunion with my birth mother. Her name's Candace. And, um, I met her when I was in my twenties, uh, and she, I didn't know my story prior to meeting her. The story I was, I received was just basically from my parents. It was, it was just a very generic story. Um, but my, my birth mother was 20. My biological father was 21 and they, although they were in a relationship, um, they, when she got pregnant, they, their parents, both sets of parents arranged for, for Candace to be sent away. Very common in that, you know, in that, during that time, it, there's, mm-hmm. there's a beautiful book, well, it's a painful book, but the women who went away, I mean, so she was sent away 
gave birth to me and then essentially told, you know, go live your life. Um, and which again, very, very common, uh, with, with first mothers at that time. And so it was a situation where parents, um, parents didn't want, you know, my, my biological grandparents did not want their kids having a child at 20. Mm. And that was, that was also, I guess, a time when that was kind of expected of you. I know that at least where I was living, you know, in Russia, that's actually, I want to say it's still the same way. I think it's still very common for people to have kids early to mid twenties. Yeah. Yeah. I think my, you know, my, my birth mother was, she was 20, you know, she, and and she even talks about it, you know, she could have parented it. It was it, it, but it really was an era of, it was a time when women were told they weren't given that they weren't given that option. You know, they weren't given the option of we'll support you until, you know, until you're a little, until your baby's a little older and we'll, you know, where the extended family will help. And they were just basically told you need to give your baby a better life and your parent, you know, your baby deserves a better home. And, you know, it's all, it's all just this, this kind of, um, rhetoric in my mind. I mean, just the story that these women were told, uh, it's hard to me. It's very heartbreaking. I, I spoke at the concern. It's called cub concerned United birth parents. Um, I spoke at their annual conference in, I guess it was last November or maybe early December, but just, it's just heartbreaking what, you know, to me, it's sometimes coercion, what women of that era were told um, and made to feel and all the shame and secrecy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. I think I I was, I can't relate exactly to that because I had a a slightly different story as far as how I ended up in the orphanage. My my mom actually, so my mom, she has um, been an alcoholic for, I think I want to say from three to nine. So I was three uh-huh. years old. And um, so when I was nine, I actually made that decision on my own. I ended wow. Up, yeah. yeah, I read that. I read that about you. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was what a, a very... Deci- what a decision for a nine-year-old to make. It was extremely hard. Um, you know, it, it's it's interesting to look at back decisions um, like that, especially because at the time... I didn't really, it was, I want to say it was easier to process because it was kind of one of those things. It's like, yes or no. Yeah. But now looking back at everything and the things that happened afterwards, it, it's a lot more complex because right. then now I'm able to pinpoint and say, well, if this didn't happen, then X, Y, and Z wouldn't have happened. But back then, you know, adoption was, wasn't even a thing in my mind. Yeah. I didn't even know yeah. like you could do that. So just the orphanage alone, that was, that was a hard enough um, thing to process, but yet it was relatively easy to make, I want right. to say, at the time. Wow. And did you have people that were, when you made that decision, like, like who could help, who were, like, supportive or mentors mm-hmm. to you? So I had, it, at the time, I was in... Um, I want to say it was kind of like a council for the city. And we were standing in this office. It was myself, the person in charge, and my sister. My sister was my 
legal guardian at the time. So she was standing behind me, um, and I still had this image of her crying in the background and saying, you know, no, don't do it. You will, Things will change. But I was just so determined in my mind to take that next step forward because it was more so when I had heard her say things would change, it was it was something that had been repeated for six years straight. Right. Six to five years um, or five to six years. So it, it was like one of those things was where if I had said no, then it, I was more so worried about falling back into that again, into those false promises. So, right. um, so as far as the support network, I want to say I definitely did have people on my end. Um, I was also at the time very surprised that my sister took the situation as is um you know i i i i didn't think that she it was harder for me to imagine her um being supportive of my decision making as well because i was so young so it's it was one of those things where it was like i didn't really understand what the orphanage was yeah so when she, it was more so like I was thinking that, she, you know, she would be the one making that decision for me. But I guess right. I, I was old enough to um, consent on my own to something like that. And, you know, it, that life, it has, the orphanage life, it, it definitely has its own set of challenges. Yeah. There, there, there are some things that I haven't been able to find in any um, newspaper article or interview or anything like that. And I think one of the reasons why that happens is because there are so many traumatic experiences that happen in those instances that once kids get out, you know, they want to forget about it. They right. Don't, they don't want to talk about it because it, it just brings back nightmares. Right. 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 Wow. That's so powerful. Yeah. So. Wow. And I'm guessing that's obviously why the the reason why you're why you're doing what you're doing oh absolutely yeah, yeah. it's it's entirely based off of uh, my own experience of going through this and you know one of the other things that I've learned throughout all of it and I'm sure you have too is that when I first started overcoming odds um, I had both sides of the story I had people that said you know this is a great concept you have the, the story and you went through it you should 100% do this and then there was another side that said, what is this? This makes no sense. This has no value. This does not need to exist. So at that time, it was a little bit harder to balance the two, but yet I will always continue to lean towards what essentially was in my heart. Right. And that was to really just help other people who have been through the experiences or maybe still going through the experiences that I went through. Right. And was that kind of opposition was that from members of the adoption and foster care community or was that people that were not um connected to oh. or by adoption mm -hmm. i want to say it was more so from people who were not connected right to adoption right. so that th that actually uh in a way it helped me out even more in making my decision because i was able to say to myself well people you know these people don't understand what the process right. really is and so even explaining something as basic but as complex as a person sharing their story 
you know, to some people it, it can be viewed as, oh, it's just another blog. It's just another way for people to express their thoughts and feelings. But in addition to all of that, it's also a huge form of therapy. Absolutely. That people don't understand. And when, healing and connecting with your community. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yes. And that that's where I first started to see it because, you know, when, when it first started, it was just my story and then it grew into 5, 10, 20. And then people would actually reach out and say, hey, I didn't know this would do this to me. Or, you know, I cried while answering this question. And that's yeah. when it started to click more and more in my mind. And just like you said before, it, going into your story and answering some of those questions like why did i get adopted because like you said some of those things they're not even discussed right and right. some and some adoptions they're so closed that you know we have had people that have submitted stories that just found out they were adopted right like 40 so, years later and that's like it's so, <laughs> that's just so like mind-blowing to me because it's, it's like how can that happen for 40 years and then a random instance, you know, over a dinner table just like spills out this hidden secret right, that right. could have played a big role in determining what the other person should have been doing with his or her life. Right. Well, and also, I mean, most of the people that I know who have, who have uh, learned about their adoption in late, you know, late in life, called, like late discovery adoption, um, you know, they all, I think almost everyone that I know or I've worked with, they all say things like, I always had a sense, or once they find out, they realize they, they, something kind of feels like it's fallen into place. But what a tragedy that there's still in today's society, people who think that it's okay to not be truthful and not be transparent. I know in my work with, with families and adoptive parents and, um, Perspective adoptive parents, it's, it's I really I really stress the truth is your friend. Mm -hmm. You know, if if it's possible to have openness in adoption, have openness. Like the, for your, this has to be child like adoption. If it's going to continue, needs to be child centric. You know, what's mm -hmm. in the best interest of the child, the one who doesn't have any voice usually. Yep, I want to jump back to one of the topics that sure uh, I believe you're next one of the experts. At, and that is uh, conflict resolution. What do you do when you face conflict? When I face conflict? Um, well, what do I do when I face conflict? I mean, I think for me, um, I think I think about something for a long, like a long time and, may, and I probably overthink things and, <laughs> and try to resolve. I think that that in terms of adoption, like coping strategies for a lot of adoptees and they can be interchanged, but kind of the, the good adoptee that does that, you know, is compliant and acquiesces to everything and wants to keep their place in the family. Um, you know, this idea that maybe they'll be sent back if they're bad. I mean, that's one kind of coping strategy. And the other one is they're going to test, test, test and, and almost prove that they're not, war that they're, again, this is all unconscious, but, you know, mm -hmm. prove that they're not, worthy to, to be loved or worthy to stay in that family. So in my family, I was the, the, the good adoptee and I was, you know, I just I tried to toe the, I mean, toe the line, do everything right. be kind of, kind of strive for perfectionism. So, so conflict, 
I would take conflict on almost like, how can I fix this myself? So, so I'm a very, very uh, non-confrontational um, person. And so conflict resolution for, and I, I don't, I don't think this is necessarily, you know, all the time, you know, healthy all the time, but, but conflict resolution for me is, is really owning, you know, trying almost to solve the problem in my own mind before, before bringing it up to someone else. Um, you know, as a therapist working with, with couples or families or, um, uh, you know, individuals talking about conflict resolution, I mean, I think it's, it's knowing your own, you know, what, what's like knowing your own stuff and knowing your own story and knowing your own triggers, um, that can really help in working with conflicts, you know, making sure you can, if you're, if you're actively in the conflict, um, knowing that a person needs to kind of diffuse before they can hear anything before information can actually be, um, received. We know that the brain kind of, if it's if the, if, if you're at a 10, a couple's fighting at a 10, nothing really is going to be accomplished. It's the, mm -hmm. the nervous system and the brain need to kind of regulate, quiet down and then reconnect, you know, a little bit later, um, when, when the, the communication can be exchanged. I don't know if that answers your question, but no, it does. So it sounds like it's more so just being aware of a situation of when the situation comes up and then processing it sounds like in whatever way you feel comfortable doing it. Right. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's being aware of your trig of, of your triggers too. You know, what's getting triggered here. Um, and is this, does you know, I mean, I kind of approach it too. Like if I'm in conflict with, uh, let's say my partner and he said something to me and, and I get triggered, I think also reminding, I think it's, it's important to remind ourselves like who, like, Oh, he's normally, he's on my side. So this maybe isn't, maybe what I heard isn't really what I, what, what the way I'm taking it. And, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense either, oh, totally. but mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it seems like, so you, you bring up a couple of good points. Um, first is that it seems that you have this unshakable faith in people. Because, <laughs> you know, it's not, it's you based on my understanding. It sounds like you're so upbeat and positive and <laughs> when you discuss all these things about conflict how you're able to snap back how do you keep that's that really going funny. that's really pretty astute of you oleg um i do have i do have a lot of faith in people um and i am pretty upbeat um how do i do it uh well i think i try really hard to surround myself with with good supportive people in my life and friends and um take good breaks from my work and try to exercise and take good care of myself and and I you know and I use the I use the tools that I share with my clients I I mean I practice yoga I practice mindful awareness I you know I meditate and I try to I don't I don't just like I just don't say that, that those things are good I I try to apply them to myself and, you know, I guess part of it, I think, too, is I, I don't know, I feel like I have a very, I, I feel like I've, I, maybe I was born with a resiliency or um, something, but I, I, I am a pretty upbeat, happy person. 
Yeah, because I, I, I've always, I was just wondering how is it that people like yourself are able to, you know, deal with like adversity and, and do it in a, in a different way, not like one of the things or one of the ways that I used to deal with it is that back before I was exposed to concepts like mindfulness or meditation or things like that, you know, it, it was a lot harder for me to do the, those things because when a challenging moment comes up, it obviously, it seems like it trigger, triggers everything. Right, it hijacks, so, your brain gets hijacked. Yeah. Exactly, so everything goes from perfectly calm to 10, you know, through the roof, like the house is on fire type of thing. So it's like, it, it was a lot harder to take a step back and try and understand why is this happening? What's causing it? What can I do about it? Yeah, no, I can, I can completely... Uh, understand that too. And, and I think that when a person does get triggered, you know, it is, it's that, that the limbic system is activated and it's fight, flight, or freeze. And it is hard then when you're in any state like that to go, oh yeah, I should go sit and meditate or I should go for a walk. Um, but I think with practice, you start to realize, wow, these things really work Mm -hmm. and being able, you know, like in terms of, of mindful awareness, being able to work with thoughts and feelings um, as the observer and picking and choosing which thoughts and feelings you want to follow, you know, really empowers a person to feel like they're, they have control over their thoughts and feelings rather than being controlled by them. Is that going to happen every single time? No, but with practice that becomes the default, you know, like, wow, I'm feeling really anxious right now, or I'm feeling really upset or overwhelmed, being able to have that experience. And then almost the dual awareness of, and I know this is going to pass and I know this is going to pass and I know this is going to pass. Even the good, even the good feelings are going to pass and the good thoughts. Mm-hmm. Uh, final thought for today's episode. And it is when odds are completely against you, what are some core fundamental principles that you always refer to? Huh? That is a good question. Okay. So some of them are, or what I had said earlier, um, believing that this, that this particular moment is not going to last forever. Um, and that, that the situation is going to change, uh, believing in my own resiliency, believing in my own, um, ability to face face difficult situations based on, you know, past experience and kind of reminding myself, Mm -hmm. uh, surround, you know, surrounding myself by people who can also remind me of that. Um, good self care. Mm. Uh, and a kind of belief in just, I'm not, I mean, I, I, I always think this is, is when people say I'm not a religious person, I'm not a religious person, but I do believe there's something bigger than, than this. And so just trust, you know, just trying to trust in that, you know, trust, trust in something bigger like the universe or, um, that sounds so out there, but (laughs) just a belief, just a belief that, that there is something bigger. Um, so with that said, do you think that things will always work out at the end? Um, is that, is that the mindset that, or one of the things that you've, it's not the 
not well things are going to work out in the end it just it might they might not work out how i want them to mm. um i am definitely not a person who believes that every you know that that saying everything happens for a reason i don't i don't i don't i don't think that's i don't believe that at all actually um but i guess i do have enough experiences where i didn't think things were going to be okay and then they were and again, they might not have looked exactly how I wanted them to. So again, kind of trusting from past experience that I, whatever happens, I either have the tools and skills, or people ar- or people around me have have the tools and skills um, to handle whatever situ- situation comes up. And w- with that, I mean just you know, t- practical tools, coping skills. Um, you know, patterns of self-care and, and the, and knowledge to, to take care of myself should, should anything come up. So I kind of trust in that too. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Well, Leslie, thank you so much for taking some time with us today. It was truly was a pleasure learning from you and your background as a therapist and an adoptee and everything in between. Thank so, you. Well, like, I'm just impressed with the work you're doing and I, I just, I'm really, I'm touched by the, the stories that I read and listen to on your, on your podcast and on your blog and you're doing, you're doing amazing work. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm also inspired by your own, your personal story as well. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you can receive all of our latest episodes along with featured stand-up and speak-up stories and ways you can be involved with Overcoming Odds. Once again, thank you for listening, and we look forward to having you next week.